0: I'm Roxanne Cody, and welcome to Just the Right Book. We're a podcast for curious, enthusiastic, and engaged readers. Our job is to help you discover new books in all genres, give you unique insights into your favorite authors, and of course, keep you up to date with what's going on in the literary world. This week, I had the absolute pleasure of speaking with Erin Hozier, co-author of Patty Schemmel's Hit So Hard. She's a literary agent with Dunau, Carlson, and Lerner. She lives in Brooklyn, and her debut memoir is out now called Don't Let Me Down, and we just had the best conversation about her coming-of-age story, which has been called Tender, Funny, and Resilient, and It's All That and More. So, here's my conversation with Erin. Everyone has a story. Not everyone can tell it. Today, we are joined by Erin Hosier, who most assuredly can tell her story and does so with the kind of wit, energy, warmth, and honesty that rivets you to the page. I just wanted her to emerge from a dark past, a complicated dad, Her own rebellious, dangerous behavior, Victorious. Her debut memoir, actually it comes out this week, where her debut podcast and conversation, but the name of her debut memoir is Don't Let Me Down, and she takes us on the long road from rural Ohio to frenzied New York City. We meet her parents, who unpredictably trade their 60s rock and roll life for Christian enrapture and discipline. We meet her dad, who is prone to violent outbursts, and we meet her trying to navigate her way through the debris and love. And all the way, she makes us laugh, cry, and think, all you need is love. Mm. So welcome, Erin Osher. Thank you so much. Betsy Lerner, who's a friend and a literary agent, and your colleague, um, Erin is a literary agent, also encouraged me to read the book, and I'm really glad uh, that she did. I just, I was totally immersed in it. Wow. Erin, so I want to start with this. Um, I'm going to read, you know what, I'm going to have you read this little part of the book and then ask you a question. If you read me the last paragraph here, starting with my father.
1: My father taught me why A Day in the Life from Sgt. Pepper was the rare example of a perfect song, composed of two halves, one by Lennon, one by McCartney, that were totally different in sound, yet perfectly complementary. And the song featured an orchestra. The piano chord that closed it was more than a minute long. He'd remind me that John and Paul were still teenagers when they wrote Please Please Me. I learned to identify a sitar because of Norwegian wood and tape looping in Tomorrow Never Knows. There were background vocals in Rain, the first time a band had used that recorded technique in a pop song. My father could talk ad nauseum about the significance of the invention of artificial double tracking on the vocals on every song on Revolver. I preferred these classes to the ones I had to talk to take about the Johns and Pauls of the Bible.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so when I read your memoir, I think of the bookends of your story as um, church yep. and religion on the one hand, and music on the other. Yeah. Describe the impact that each had on you. Oh, wow. Um. Well, the church
1: is the first thing I really remember, but then so is rock and roll. Like, church is the boring part, and rock and roll is the fun part when things come alive and there's colors in your memories. That's all music. But the messengers were kind of always the same, which was Mm. men, (laughs) you know? Like, men are in control. It's a man's world. Um you better listen to me and fall in line or bad things will happen to you. Um, all of that was kind of revolving around the family itself, which was made up of a father who was strong and scary and a mom who was tiny and quiet and sad and three children or in, in my case the only one that mattered—the only,
0: <laughs> only daughter. We'll get to that, Erin. <laughs> the firstborn. So your parents, who were '60s people, yeah. Then your mom became very involved with a church group, yes, and in and in a way, it seemed like it gave her her first identity. It did.
1: I think of my mom as someone who went from high school to marriage very quickly. She met my father like right when he was still in, at Ohio State and was about to, you know, dodge the draft by losing a bunch of weight. And she found herself in a loveless marriage or just a marriage that she didn't know what to do with. I don't think she wanted to marry him, but her parents were very much like, he asked, the wedding is paid for, you're getting married. So she found herself in this place without a community, and she answered a one ad for, like, some women's um, kind of mentoring. So,
0: Erin, talking about what shaped you, yeah, you talk about these two books that were critical to the activity that your mom had in church. So yes. to give a sense to our listeners about what was going on in your mom's head and therefore in your house, yeah. I'm reading – from a book, I'm paraphrasing in your language, from a book called Creative Counterpart that's That's still in print. That's a real book, yeah. And these were lessons for women to understand about their role. And there are things like men need quiet, men need not be nagged for failing to put discarded clothes in the hamper or any other reason related to their right to comfort Men need sex on demand. Men need you to look and smell your best. Men need you to be super organized so they don't have to be Men need you to look the other way and keep your opinions to yourself. Men need you to create an atmosphere befitting the king of the world. Men need you to take care of their kids. Men need you to build them up and make them feel like they can win a beauty contest. Men are always right, even when they're clearly insufferably deluded. Yes. So how much of that did you buy into and for how long?
1: Uh, I didn't buy into it for very long, but I saw that everyone around me did buy into it and Mm -hmm. that these were just laws that you couldn't ever question unless it was during, you know, the hour-long Phil Donahue show. Like, I... I think my mother was going to these meetings with other women of the church to try to help each other through the bullshit lies of their daily existence, which mm. was that w- the only way to get closer to God is through our husbands, because as they men the they are God. Right? They are. They are. You know, Jesus wasn't a a woman. You know, Jesus
0: was a man, and. And God created Adam before he created Eve. So there was a quote. It it might be yours. Your father was a mass of contradictions, a pacifist and a tyrant, an optimist with demons, a hippie and a conservative, a proud father and jerk, a boy and a man. And as I was reading this book, on the one hand, there was this man with these violent Outbursts. Yeah. Who, in today's view, didn't spank you but abused you. Yeah. Yeah. In today's view. He clearly loved you. He clearly had a connection with you through music and when you were in college and even when you started working in New York. Which of these descriptions do you think you most attach to as defining him?
1: Hmm they were all a part of him i think nowadays if we'd had the benefit of some like family counseling or if he had had some psychotherapy he may have been um diagnosed with mm-hmm. with something certainly a battle with anxiety and depression if not bipolar disorder mm. which i think is something that probably runs in our family but was not ever Questioned. It wasn't the thing that it wasn't. It just wasn't questioned. You would never question if a man was uncontrolled, like out of control of his emotions or his physicality, that there's anything wrong with that. That's a man being a man. You know, ahead right. of taking. So that's the what head it is. So that's what it takes. Yeah, but he was a wimp. He he barely mm. weighed more than 120 pounds. You know, like he was. Physically, like, unable to do the things that um, that were expected of men, you know, like take care of the house. and. But he do was all a successful businessman, right? He was totally right? a successful yeah. businessman. He was great on the fly. He could talk really fast, and he was a good writer, everyone said so. Um, he certainly read a lot. He was passionate and exuberant and loved um, – talking about the Beatles or movies or the things that he really liked. So I think that I loved that positivity that came out of him, but also saw that it was
0: indirect, you know, a contradiction. Right. And how did it impact how you thought about men? Oh. <laughs> um, well, it must have impacted
1: everything, Number 1, I I felt like you needed to have their attention
0: if you mm. wanted to make it yeah. in the
1: world. Obviously. As a teenager,
0: you might have been described as boy crazy.
1: I was boy crazy up until like 5 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> a grown-up teenager. I, it's true. I felt very, you know, confident about how I was appealing to men and they respected me. It wasn't like about sex. I just preferred men and their their company. And part of that was, you know, a lot of fear. Um, Fear of? I think fear of rejection from them or, you know, fear of girls and like the power that they held that I didn't, you know, Mm. just like being pretty or having big boobs or just, you know, I figured out there were a number of ways that you could get ahead. Yeah. But- Men were easily manipulat- manipulated, Yeah, I guess, is the, is the and way. And did
0: you learn that? Did your mom manipulate your dad? It didn't seem that way. I don't think she did. I think he wished that
1: she would have more, and he commented on it a lot. Like, he would often talk about the way she looked or, um, you know, how beautiful she was. Like, she was the mm. most beautiful. But it was only when other people you know, we're around, when, yeah. when we're listening, because yeah. otherwise I wouldn't have felt that he adored her the way that he did when she was singing in front of the church for all to see. Mm. And he was, you know, the producer of her singing group, His and, Harmony.
0: You know, your father is the big character yeah. in in the book. And for obvious reasons, and we'll talk about that a little bit more but the story that I was fascinated by is your mother's journey because yeah. your mother went from, as you said earlier, this kind of obedient young woman and found herself immersed in the church. And then as time went by, began to feel that she had a right to be independent yeah. and in fact then went to school and, and did all of that. What was your take on what allowed that to happen? So there had been a break
1: in her faith and our father's employment. He'd gotten cancer, and he was out of commission for a while, and then he went through this this time where he was just very docile and, and recovering all the time. And sometimes he was working, and sometimes he was just recovering. And she had to go out and get a job. So she started taking night classes and worked at... A bank or worked at a part-time job at like J.C. JCPenney or something. And that alone gave her enough life experience where mm. it was like, okay, there's a lot more going outside in the world beyond what the church, what I'm learning about in my, in my like prayer group or with my
0: friends or in my house. Mm. And, and did your father admire her for that or did it How did your father react to it? I think he
1: was very – initially very jealous and very worried, and I would hear him, you know, exhibiting these signs of what I now see as just like a a very straightforward abusive relationship where if she was at um, piano class for an extra 20 minutes talking to someone, then she was – she must have been sleeping with the Mm -hmm. teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, like – very basic like she possessive. cannot yes possessive controlling angry not believing her when she said she was somewhere where of course she was yeah um really not wanting her to be good at something without his involvement
0: you know, so as I because she's a
1: brilliant musician. She sang. She she taught herself how to play guitar. She wrote
0: songs. She right? wrote
1: fifty songs. I mean, it's something she barely talks about now. It's just it was in her. She did it. She was the creator all along. But I thought that he was the creator
0: all along. Yeah. So there's a couple of couple of questions that come to mind from what you just said. One is in. Although the story takes place in the 70s, in some ways it feels like the 50s. Yeah. Right? Because your parents seem old-fashioned in their roles. Yeah. And your mom emerges from that in the way that a lot of women in my generation emerged in the 60s. Yeah. Were they typical of the families that existed in the 70s in rural Ohio, or were they outliers in Then
1: I think they were outliers then because I remember feeling like we were among older people. Like my father worked as a time for like um, the youth group, you know, like Mm -hmm. mentoring the the younger people. So he felt – they felt like they were in their 20s even if they were in their
0: 30s. Erin, one of the things that I thought about in reading the book – so it in some ways is a classic coming-of-age – story, although I do think your level of self-awareness and ability to be funny about Mm -hmm. it is unusually appealing. Thank you. But the question is, there's a lot of messed up families, unfortunately, of which yours was one. At what point do you think, having experienced this, does a person who grew up in a house like this have to stop blaming their parents and take responsibility for themselves? Like, where? Yeah.
1: I mean, for me, it's when I noticed in my life that I was starting to hurt other people and definitely started to hurt myself. Just falling into these behavior patterns that weren't just self-destructive, but, you know, I would be lying. You know, I would be cheating. I would be, um, you know, Taking drugs but not telling anyone. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of stuff where
0: most people telling taking drugs are not telling. <laughs> are not
1: telling anyone. Right. exactly. It's but I a- <laughs> knew. I knew you that knew. I had a secret and that I was acting out. You know, I knew I knew enough to know that these behaviors in me weren't presenting um in a way that I could identify until after my father died suddenly. Right before I was about to turn 27, and then I started to go to therapy about, like, within a year after that and started just unpacking all of it and learning. So your dad dying became
0: the yeah. impetus.
1: It was the impetus to, like, trying to figure out what had gone wrong in my own understanding of... Issues of spirituality, psychology, and religion—you know—all of mm. those things really conflated, and I realized that, um, yeah, it wasn't because of sin. Right. <laughs> it, you know, depression is like a chemical thing, and right, um, mental illness exists, and addiction exists, and people in a family when one of these things is going on um, are all sick. When, yeah. when 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 one person is really struggling
0: well and you talked about that at one point you were already in new york so had escaped yeah and you got a call and realized that one of your brothers was having a problem with drugs and there was a family therapy yeah session and tell us what you learned even in that first early family therapy session cuz it goes to some of what you're saying
1: yeah. It was before my dad had died because I was still I, – so I was still in Ohio, but I was away at college. Oh, that's
0: right. You were at Kent State.
1: Yeah, and we were, we were going to do this brave new thing called an intervention for my 14-year-old brother who was smoking pot, had been found to have been smoking pot or had, you know – stole some money to buy some pot and it just felt like this huge thing and we all went including my best friend from college at the time who barely knew my brother and never met him
0: Lewis right Lewis
1: and we were all sitting around and had to like you know tell him that we're here for for him and and we just we didn't want him to to be this burnout anymore but what I learned from that at the time was that Therapy is bullshit, and people are liars in that field as well. But
0: So would your brother's take on your family be—how would it be similar or different from yours?
1: Well, um, my brothers and I all have our own memories and experiences, and I did—I um, obviously interviewed them and got their permission to talk about certain things, but my brother Simon did read the book, and— over the holidays, asked my mother because he had no memory that she had actually moved into the yard. Oh, into a tent. <laughs> in, into a tent in the yard when she wanted to story. get divorced. Yeah. <clears throat> and um, I forget how old he would have been at that time, but he just didn't remember it at all. Mm. And she was like, no, it really happened. That absolutely happened. So that was that was kind of interesting. Did your mom and your other brother read the book? My brother Greg isn't going to read the book, but is in support of me writing it and wanted me to write it. Um, but my mother has read it. Yeah,
0: and how? Multiple what she say? She's were you worried about that? I was
1: really worried about it because i I just wanted her to feel seen and loved, and and to not see herself the way that I knew that she would see herself, which is a, as a bad mother.
0: Mm. You know,
1: she really has a lot of guilt. Like, who was that person? How could yeah. I have not seen it? And I'm like, you were a 23-year-old abused woman. woman. Like, this is textbook stuff, but we threw you to
0: the wolves. Well, I loved her in the book.
1: I know. I loved her too. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just wanted I to, like, hug her. I agree, and a lot of people, or a lot of readers, have said the same thing. Like, I just want to give her a hug. She's so strong, and she and has, she's
0: emerged. I mean, she's beyond
1: she's... emerged. She she's done it all and then some. Like my father went to like a certain level in in advertising and plateaued. She, she, she yeah, she burst through that. She did all of that. She's like basically retired now, and she like re she builds houses and like redoes like all of the interiors and she can do anything.
0: So Aaron, how did writing the book change you?
1: Oh, oh, well, it made it gave me a whole new respect for writers who I already respected quite a bit, but um definitely respect for the process. Mm. Um it takes it took a lot longer than I thought that it ever would. Um I I just feel like a whole new humility
0: mm. and about yourself or about for writers
1: about myself and about and for writers I just feel like there's no controlling it like it, there's a compulsion to yeah. be a writer and to to tell the story and to share and connect with other people sometimes it's bad sometimes it's good sometimes it works sometimes it's publishable but you can't really control it. Yeah. So I wish that I could have gone back and like studied writing
0: in school. I don't know, you did a damn good job. I don't thank think you. you needed to have studied writing, Erin. <laughs> I think but you figured it out. I,
1: thank you. Thank you. That's really nice. But it it was such a humbling <laughs> humbling exercise just to see that, okay, I was a writer all along. And yeah. I was just too afraid to ever,
0: you know. What made you brave enough to write the book?
1: That's a really good question. I don't feel brave enough to to have written the book. There's so much that you you have to leave out mm. no matter what. There's so many stories and scenes and pages that I scrapped because I just, it would have been too much for the reader. It would have been too many examples, but you still live with those mm. scenes and think about them all the time. Yeah, it's a lot. So,
0: Aaron, one of the things that I I couldn't help but think about is there's a fair amount of um, abuse, sexual abuse. Yeah. Um, by first when you were ten, mm-hmm. then to your brother, then a series of bad guys. Yeah, but dated. not by my father. Not, but never no. by your father. No, no, no. I don't want to give that um, impression at all because yeah. that wasn't, but. At the time that it was occurring, so now we look at this through the lens of the Me Too movement, right, where we have a much more – a healthier understanding of what's legit and not legit for – so how do you – how did you look at it then and how do you look at it now?
1: Uh, Just the phenomenon of sexual abuse among children, I think – I've always felt then, as I feel now, that it is absolutely a rite of passage that is normal for millions and millions of children. Mm. And whether you take that one in four statistic or one in six, it doesn't matter. It's so many millions of children, and it affects everything. And I think that's why I really had the impulse to write the book or really just to go to therapy in the first place which was to try to understand how that those years not just like being sexually abused by a neighbor a pedophile but also being hit by mm. like a strange woman who was my babysitter, yeah, or by my own father, or by or the camp the, the camp, camp the Bible camp woman, <laughs> well, I just took it out on the Bible camp people, but yeah, anyone, so
0: Aaron, having worked through that through therapy, yeah, what is it that you think, as a society we still need to do so that? Kids don't have to be wandering in the desert with that information and run the risk of the enormous damage of keeping it a secret.
1: Mm. I just feel like it starts with... What could have changed it for you? You didn't tell your parents. I didn't tell my parents. I didn't think that they could handle it. I thought what that meant... You were 10. Yeah. But I thought that A, for my mom, that would mean that she would cry too much. And for my dad, that would mean that he would lose control. He would be so angry that he would lose control and then he would kill the person. And then go to jail. And go to jail forever. And when it did happen to my brother and was revealed when it happened to my brother, nothing happened. And that was worse. Mm. Like, my mother was so good at, you know... Trying to do the things that you're supposed to do with a child who has been traumatized, you know, encouraging them to write it down and talk about it, and getting therapy for him. Um, But my father never brought it up. Brought it up. They. She doesn't even have her memory of them, like talking to the police about it. Somebody else had to call the police. Mm. So, like a lot of because he was arrested ultimately. Yeah, but he was a juvenile offender, and I think he was also just put into, like, maybe therapy or anger management or whatever they do. Like, back mm. in the day, it was like, go have him talk to this pastor and talk about why he has this illness. I wonder,
0: I wonder what he's doing now.
1: And I looked him up. I tried to look him up because I'd heard that he was in prison because he went by a couple of different names, um, but I just couldn't find – there's so many yeah, there are so many by that name probably.
0: So, Aaron, talk a little bit more about what would have helped you when.
1: Let me let me just go back and, and say like what I think about when I think about child abuse or corporal punishment. Yeah. Okay. I think that that's really related um to not wanting to have a discussion about sexual abuse or child abuse of any kind. I feel like when I, it was like when I was being hit, I would—I was never angry with my father. I was angry with myself.
0: Right. So you felt responsible for causing him to be angry. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the damage.
1: I think so. I think so, but I don't know. I think that he should have talked to us mm-hmm. and to talk to my brother, and that there should have been like a kind of sitting down together beyond what i got in the driveway cuz i did yeah. get a kind of private explanation and just letting us know what happened yeah like what what was the conversation in the yard that my brother has a memory like seeing through out the window but right nothing ever happened the family just moved
0: away it always looks easier in hindsight than it is in the present mm-hmm. right you know, I think about that as I read about the scenes in your house going on with your mom, you know, and you can you did a vivid job of explaining what that kind of eruption looked like yeah. by your dad, and yet that wasn't really talked about. Everybody would tiptoe around it, and he wasn't accountable until he was, which took a long time. Yeah. So let, let's move it to a lighter <laughs> subject. Sorry. Uh, no, that's okay. I mean... One of the things that I think works so interestingly in the book is the light and the dark. Yeah. So the light part was that your dad loved music, and he instilled that in you. And in fact, each chapter is named after a Beatles song. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple of questions around the Beatles. Okay. One is, which is your favorite Beatles?
1: Oh, it changes all the time. I mean, I have a soft spot for Ringo because everybody... Nobody, Nobody pays any else attention does. <laughs> and he was such a bon vivant. I mean he still is. I just love his the way he wears his his uh velvets and his rings. I um grew up loving as my father did John Lennon and his mystique and I was recently talking to a girlfriend the other night who was like, you know, I always thought Lennon was the biggest asshole until I read your book. And now I have so much more empathy for him because mm. he really was the one that was most like my father and that he had this incredible um, dark side that was really apparent because mm. there it was. But he's known to
0: be the peace love, you know.
1: Once. But he, And, but you know,
0: he, the other thing you talk about in the book is your dad, John Lennon, and Paul McCartney all... Lost their mothers when they were 16.
1: I think they were all 16. Right. And my father, in a very, you know, in a profound moment in his life, you know, couldn't spend her dying moments with her in the hospital because his his own father was like, get out of this hospital looking like a hippie, you have to go cut your hair before you see her. And so he she died, and he didn't even know that she was dying until he got to the hospital mm. freshly shorn. So I think that's why he always had long hair for a while until he couldn't anymore. So I saw all of these
0: um, similarities per-
1: similarities with him and – It made me think about it like when he went when Lennon went through his lost weekend and or just like Mm -hmm. was cheating on Yoko or whenever any of those things came up that I would read way after the fact of the myth of the Beatles and of John Lennon's, you know, narcissism, for lack of a better word. But he was as explosive. Just as explosive. Yeah. But, yeah, I think I'd probably fall in love with John. I mean, with uh, Paul, with Paul. Yeah. But George actually um I just really love his hair. And I love I love um Here Comes the Sun as a song. But I I don't think I would have fallen for George.
0: Yeah. You know, one of the things that I did as I was reading the book is I kept replaying Beatles songs. Yeah. As you mentioned them and one of the things we were talking about before we went on air is I tend, I probably shouldn't admit this, but I tend to be the kind of music listener, and I love listening to music, but I sort of don't really listen to the lyrics. Yeah. And I went back and listened to lyrics of a lot of the Beatles songs as a result of your book. And then and I was reminded that we share our favorite Beatles album. Yeah, Rubber Soul. Rubber Soul. And I went back and listened to it. And it reminded me of how often listening to a song transports you to the time when you first heard the song.
1: Yeah. Do you find that for you? Yes, definitely. Definitely. I think all of my, my memories smell like old vinyl, you know? Like, Do you still I have the vinyl, your dad's records? I still, still records? have the records. They're in my living room. Do you play them? I play them. I now have a a vinyl player again. I can play them. A lot of them are really warped because they're the same. Yeah. You know, they're so old now. But, yeah, I love the way the the Beatles
0: sound, particularly on vinyl. And what's your favorite Beatles song?
1: Oh, it's hard to have one song.
0: Um, All right, I'll give you two.
1: Well— there's something about "Don't Let Me Down" itself. I know it's probably not like not known to be like a great Beatles song, mm-hmm. but that plaintive "Don't Let Me Down." Like, obviously, it's the title of my book. It's definitely had the biggest influence on me. Something about that. I just associate that with um, my 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 dad mm-hmm. and that whole coming of age experience. Yeah, I just love that. And, of course, like Norwegian Wood, anything yeah. anything from that record that is – it's one of those albums that just teaches you how to listen to albums.
0: Yeah, because I went back after reading the book or while reading the book. Yeah. And then I found myself downloading the lyrics to the songs. Yeah. And, you know, you, just, I think you – I think not – you because you're you're more attuned to it but i think many of us don't read the lyrics or think about the lyrics in the way i might think of poetry yeah or think of reading a short story and for some of the great songs <laughs> the lyrics are just astounding
1: yeah yeah well like the song run for your life yeah um yeah as basically john lennon Telling his soon-to-be ex-girlfriend that she better run or he'll kill her if he finds her with the the other guy. And yeah. there's there's a lot of there's a lot of lyrics, um, particularly by John Lennon throughout his life with uh, the Beatles and in his solo work, that are specifically about domestic violence. <laughs> and mm. I used to beat her and you know keep her from the things that she loved. Um, is a lyric from Getting Better All the Time, I think. Yeah. Um, Just a Jealous Guy. Um, My Mummy's Dead. He had a lot of like pain that he was dealing with. And didn't with. he call Yoko Ono? He called her mother. Mother. Yeah. Yeah. Very very heavy Freudian stuff there. Yeah. Um So do you think you'll write another book? Yes, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> um I I helped co write a book of one of my um, childhood heroes, Patty Schemmel, another mm. musician who'd been in this band whole. Um,
0: and you wrote that with her, right? I
1: wrote that with her. And so that, that happened while I was writing Don't Let Me Down in between. So it was really like this six year odyssey of like writing and then mm. taking a break and then writing.
0: Now that this book is out, what are you worried about with the book getting out there <laughs> or excited about? <laughs>
1: I'm excited that I finished something Mm -hmm. and that it's out there. And I love talking to people about their relationships with their parents. Mm -hmm. And it's just been a revelation
0: to hear that it speaks to them or it jogs certain memories. You know, one of the things that I have found over the years as – um, we've had uh writers like Jeanette Walls or yes. Mary Carr, Pete Hamill, who have written these memoirs that give permission to other people to tell their stories. Yeah. I hope and expect your book would do the same thing, that you know, your unique set of circumstances will unleash for others either the opportunity for them to feel more normal, yeah. Or for them to be prompted to talk to their friends, their spouse, their parents even um about it. And I do think I do think that's what wonderful books like yours do is they create safe spaces.
1: I hope so. Yeah, I think it is. It is we are able to now talk to each other more about the hardcore shit that's going on in our lives. Yeah. Um and say it out loud. It would have been amazing to talk to my father during the Kavanaugh hearings earlier mm-hmm. this year, for instance, because I saw so much of that same out-of-control anger, yeah, in Brett Kavanaugh's face and jawline, as I do as I did, as did in did my fathers, dad. and I just felt like, you know, shaking him <laughs> during that trial and saying, "It's Hearing. okay, calm down, yeah, take a breath, it's okay," you know, like. Yeah,
0: that's fascinating. I, I
1: really, really like. I felt you strongly. Visceral... This is a generational thing with these men. This mm. is this is entitlement. This is narcissism. This is normal American behavior, but it doesn't have to be. Yeah, and I wonder... we don't have to reward it over and over again. And do you think it's changing? No, <laughs> you don't. Not yet. Because we keep getting these stories. We keep getting all the warnings, and we keep putting them. Yeah. We keep, it keeps getting through. But you know
0: what I worry about? There's warnings. I mean, I get that, um, yeah. and I agree with you. What I worry about a little bit is I know a lot of men that are not like that. hmm And what I hope that we do is separate the men from the boys. Absolutely. You know, that I would hate to see good men swept up we need to treat bad men for being bad. Yes. Which is different than treating all men as bad. Yes. And Yes. you know, and I think maybe we're in a little bit of an over pivot, uh-huh. right, where in order to fix it, you need to, you know, and in a lot of cases, yes. when you need to fix something, you need to over pivot and then move on to the other thing. And I, I am – you know, I'm always delusionally optimistic. Yeah. So I am hoping that there will be more conversation and more intolerance
1: yeah. of that
0: behavior saying, you know what? Sport, that's not okay. Sport, exactly. <laughs> you know? Listen, guy. <laughs> that's not okay.
1: It's not okay anymore. So do you forgive your dad? Absolutely. I do forgive my father. I wouldn't expect other people who he might have hurt to forgive them. And yeah. I don't think that anyone should should ever say to somebody else, like, you have to forgive your, your father, you know, like that kind of thing. Yeah. N- um. No, I don't. But I do. I, I do forgive my father. And you love him. I do. I love him. I believe that he loves me. I believe that that mm-hmm. love is the thing that keeps going on. I felt that. And that's not even Jesus' love, though. Like my grandmother, I hear her right now saying, like, you're coming back to the Lord. I can hear the Lord bringing you (laughs) back. But no, it's just love itself. Yeah. And that's what the Beatles taught me, was that it's it's not about God. It doesn't have to be.
0: Love is all you need. Yeah. Um so before uh, we wrap up so I have a I have a couple of last questions for you. One is do you think you'll be a different kind of literary agent after having written this book?
1: Yes. Um well, I think I've been getting better all the time. I think I've been getting better the last few years anyway. I've just been super <laughs> proactive about when it comes to the writers um, anxiety and mm. and inability to control anything or to feel mm. like you have any
0: control because you don't, and it's still going to be okay. Um, so, Erin, most, if not all, of the books that you have agented have been around music. A lot of them, yeah, a lot of music biographies.
1: Um, the first biography, the first book that I sold as an agent was... Um, like within a few months after my father died unexpectedly. And that was called Blue Monday, um, the first biography of um, Fats Domino. Mm. And then early on in the first year or two that I'd been agenting, I worked with Tommy Lee, the drummer from Motley Crue. Um, And so it just kept going from there. Jerry Lee Lewis I've worked with. Um, and a number of of writers that that just specifically write biographies.
0: So do you think you'll get more memoirs now that are unrelated to music after your book comes out? I've always gotten a
1: lot of memoirs, and I've done a lot of memoir as well. But, yeah, probably. I feel like there are less memoirs, straight memoir now, than there are kind of hybrid narrative nonfiction yeah, that yeah. feels more prescriptive or... Um, you know, participatory. What's one of your favorite memoirs? Oh, God, there's so many. I really like, I'll say, Autobiography of a Face because I did, Mm. I'd read that and it was... Well, I haven't
0: thought about that book in a long time.
1: It was something that Betsy Lerner had worked on at Doubleday. So it was Lucy... Lucy Greeley. Yeah. Who's someone that I met very early on and then she died that same year that my dad did. That book is like a one-sitting kind of mm. book, and she just lays it all out there. And Remind despair. people what that's about. Um, Lucy was a gifted writer who had been born with or had suffered as a child with a kind of facial cancer and the right. bone in her jaw and had to have many surgeries. So she never got to be the pretty girl, even though she got to be the, you know, the, the one the one who who could write the best and the one who who like got the book deal and um just I just feel like that was everybody's story with mm-hmm. but only she could tell it, and I know it's not everybody's story, yeah, but just that's what you look for in memoir is just something that you can hold on to and kind of exhale and say, oh, that person gets it right and so
0: I've been a bookseller for almost thirty years, yeah. And so I think about like from – like Frank McCourt did his first book signing at our store, wow. and that seemed like the beginning
1: yeah. of the
0: memoir that was the the intersection of biography and, as you say, narrative nonfiction. Yes. Well-done memoirs don't necessarily all have the dark life. They just know how to tell that story. Yeah, Tell me how you feel about happy endings in books. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. So it says in all my bios that happy endings put me in a bad mood. Yeah. Um, Why? Because that's just not how life is. is. It's just not how life is, and I, ugh, I, as much progress as we're making, we're still going to be kicked a whole bunch more
0: times before. Mm
1: we get to the end of the novel.
0: But you know readers want books with happy endings cuz i think that there's still a i i agree with you i don't like happy endings they annoy me. Yeah. I don't mind something ending with a bit of messy hope. Yeah. But i don't want it all tied up with a bow. But what i find is and i and i'm sympathetic to is you know life's tough enough and What they want to do sometimes is sit down with a book, like a fairy tale. Sure. Not that fairy tales weren't dark and awful, but a a fairy tale version of a fairy tale. Sure. They want to sit down and just be distracted and have a happy ending and feel good about it. I totally get that, and yet I will
1: never understand it. Yeah. I love to wallow in the horror film. Mm. You know, I just... I I think it's about trying to figure out how I would do it, how I would get out of this situation, how Mm. to be the final girl, how to last, how to live. Um, But I don't want it to be sugar-coated in any way.
0: Yeah. The other thing is I'm trying to remember the writer. um, I read the quote in Diana Antill's book, Stet, Mm. which is one of my favorite memoirs. She's a British editor and If you haven't read it, I would really encourage you. It is one of the loveliest. It's sort of a mini memoir, but it's it it was I I just adored it. But she's interviewing a woman. God, I'm upset. I can't remember her name. Who's a Holocaust? Who writes a lot about the Holocaust? Mm -hmm. And she asked, "Why did she write about all these dark things all the time?" And the writer's answer was, "It's only by understanding the dark." Can you discover the light? Yeah. All right. My last question <laughs> is: What's the book that changed your life? Ooh. Oh well, probably
1: the forest for the trees by Betsy Lerner. <laughs> I I know it's like crazy. I keep bringing her up, but we I, both love her. It was the first. It was the first um, book about writing that I'd ever read. Yeah. I think. And I was an intern. Um, at a magazine when I read it. And so you
0: met a book, you read it before you met I her? I read
1: it before I met her and I it made me want to go into book publishing specifically.
0: Mm. And then I met
1: her and she became my boss, which is just fate.
0: And one of your best friends. And one of my
1: dearest, closest friends. Yes. It's such a it's an awesome, awesome uh success story.
0: And and a good book for our listeners to understand is for you know, one of the conclusions I've come to in 30 years of bookselling is, yeah. except for five people, everybody wants to be a writer. <laughs> it's true. So for all of you who <laughs> want to be a writer, start it's the here.
1: forest for the trees. It explains why you want to be a writer yeah. and says it's okay. And it's going to be okay.
0: The book I would match it with that I also think is one of the best books on writing is Stephen King's.
1: Absolutely. People say that to me all the time. I think Peter Straub said that to me, that he recommends The Forest for the Trees and Stephen King's on writing. Yeah. As the two best books in his classes. This was 10 years ago. But still, like, she really knows what she's doing.
0: Yeah. (laughs) So, Erin, I really, uh, you know— As our listeners do or don't know, sometimes people are in the studio and sometimes um, they're remote. And uh, Betsy had pressed this book in my hands and she doesn't do that very often. And uh, not only am I glad to have met you through the Mm. book, but how much fun to actually have you here in the studio. And I hope the book gets all the readers uh, that it deserves. You've just done Just a a great job. So congratulations on your debut (laughs) memoir. Thank you so much. And the beginning of um, maybe will be more memoirs or more books or whatever. But thank you for joining us on Just the Right Book. Thank you, Roxanne. Thank you. Thanks again to Erin Hozier. Her memoir, Don't Let Me Down, is available and is out today. Make sure to pick up a copy at your favorite independent bookstore. If you haven't subscribed to Just the Right Book yet, it's free to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Pandora, or wherever you like to listen to your podcasts. And please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Just the Right Book podcast is produced by Collisions, the podcast division of CRN International. Our original new music was created by Mark Berman. Our producer is Christina Torres and our audio engineer is Pat Keogh. Thank you all so much for listening.